Hey fam, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodelink Company, a podcast about music and Web3 trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm McKeegan Voice. Today I spoke with Leticia Johnson, a creative director and brand strategist who's based in Austin, Texas. She started her career as a songwriter, and over the past decade, she has forged a career in tech, creating strategies for household names like Apple, Microsoft, and Nielsen. And more recently, she led strategy for Royal, an on-chain platform for investing in music royalties, where she delivered category-defining partnerships with artists like Nas, Diplo, and the Chainsmokers. Now she's gone all in on Visionary Rising, her agency and growth partner for creators and startups and brands. We chatted about all of that, as well as spending a Super Bowl at Diddy's house, the importance of owning your own shit, and all the other stops along her music journey that started at two years old in the backseat of her parents' car singing Janet Jackson. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. Here we go. Hey, Leticia, thanks for being here. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. Excited to chat again. Um, so as always, I'd like to start at the beginning and, and dive a little bit more into where you grew up and you know when your relationship with music started. Okay, yeah. So I grew up in Tampa Bay, Florida. Um, it's uh, it was an amazing town, beach, little beach city. Um, I think I have a story. My parents have a story, at least, from seeing me in the backseat of the car and singing Janet Jackson's uh, Rhythm Nation. And I think that's kind of where I was too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that's where my relationship with music began, really. Um, I've kind of always been around music, connected to music, and have expressed myself through music. Um, from the time that I was a child um, until even now, right? And so I think no one in my life is surprised that I've built my career in, in a way that's connected to music and, and creators, because that's kind of where where it's all started. It's it's just embedded in me from a child. Mm, cool. Yeah, starting at the ripe you know, young age of two, uh, <laughs> you know, you have way to get after it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so what happened after, uh, you know, after you, you know, you got caught singing Janet Jackson in the backseat of the car at two years old? What, what happened after that? I think my parents really just always encouraged me to continue the creative path um, in, in high school. I mean, middle school, high school, all of it, um, writing music, um, becoming a songwriter, teaching myself how to play the guitar. Growing up, I think, you know, I knew when I turned 18 that I wanted to be in the music industry. I just didn't really know how or what. And, you know, lucky enough to kind of move out to Dallas when I was 19. And within, I would say, six months of being there, connected with some people who were already within the music industry and um, were pushing themselves forward. Because Dallas, back then, I'm not going to age myself, but when I moved out there, um, it was even more interconnected, I think, than than what people know of um, with the Dallas music scene being what it is today. Um, And I was lucky enough to be connected to um, people there as soon as I moved out and through that process was able to sign a development deal with the label. Mm -hmm. Um, 
as a songwriter, myself and a few other um, people, we were able to kind of start our, our business and start to kind of develop and, and generate ideas around music and really pushing ourselves forward. Um, the deal didn't work out. You know, it's the age old story. Mm-hmm. Sign a deal. It's a horrible deal. You're young. You don't realize it until you're a little bit older mm-hmm. that, hey, some of this stuff isn't mathing, right? The math isn't mathing. <laughs> and so I started asking questions, um, you know, what is this? Where where are royalties? What's going on? And I think especially at the age that I was at, like 22, 23, a lot of, I think, my peers kind of felt like, well, why can't you just be happy, right? Like we're getting we're getting all of these things. We're getting flown out. You know, we spent time at Diddy's house for the <laughs> the football Super Bowl in Miami. You know, the uh, the the everyone comes to uh, comes to Dallas for the Super Bowl in two thousand nine. We're yeah. all over everywhere, and I think for me it was just kind of that moment of like, hey. I signed this deal when I was really young. Um, I don't really know a lot about business, but I feel like we should be seeing a lot more, especially mm-hmm. if we're hearing like our demos and stuff all over the radio. Yeah. Um, and I got kind of a real crash course of the music industry and the music business um, at that age before I kind of took a break and transitioned away to figure out what my next steps looked like. Mm. So what kind of music were you making at the time? Um, so it was just songwriting, mostly mm. hooks um, for others, um, working on a couple of like R&B soul projects as well. Mm. Um, mostly though, like I think that time during that time, song hooks for rap music was very popular. Mm-hmm. And so that became like the bread and butter right. um, and, and working a lot with a lot of different artists and doing demos and, you know, figuring that out was the type of music that I was making through the development deal. Cool. Yeah, and you mentioned that, you know, some of the people that you were working with were kind of okay to sacrifice some of those earnings, uh, you know, maybe caught up in some of the glitz and the glam of of the places you were going and, you know, the people you were, you were interacting with. Um, did that continue to be the case for them, even as as you were kind of starting to see through that and understand the reality of how the industry worked and like, you know, this wasn't a good deal or, you know, did they come around as well eventually? Um, I think it was kind of, for me, music was always a catalyst. I always saw music as the catalyst for the next thing. Um, I'm a huge Jay-Z fan and, you know, Jay-Z always says, you know, I gave you the blueprint, follow this. Hmm. And so I was kind of looking at it from the perspective of like music is a tool to get us to the next thing. It, it allows us to diversify all of the other things. So, you know, thinking about, well, how can we take the progress that we're making from the music catalog and transition that into, you know, a clothing line, a lifestyle clothing line. And then we take that and we actually transition it into a creative studio where we take the information that we're learning and we do it for other people. We're, we're recording our own videos. We're doing our own management stuff. Why don't we do that for others? Mm. And like, that was kind of my vision back then. And I think that even though a lot, a lot of people, my peers saw that vision, I think that taking the risk was a little bit harder for them Mm. than it was for me, because for me, 
music, as much as I loved it, was always just the doorway into everything else. It wasn't the end all be all for me. Interesting. Okay, cool. That makes sense. So at the point when you kind of, you know, became fed up and you were ready to take a step back and pursue other things, was that, was that kind of part, you know, of your blueprint, blueprint as you'd imagined, as you'd, as you'd imagined it, it was like, okay, I've done this with this music. Now I'm ready to, to start to build on top of that. Was that the idea? Yeah, that was the idea. And I think one of the first things that I did in transitioning out of it was like start a clothing line. Um, and really the, the clothing line within like two years, we were getting like 20,000 orders a month. I started a blog from that and we were just really building from there at a lot of people were wearing it. We were all over MTV and it really taught me the importance of just like distribution and access. So because I was a songwriter and I had access to a lot of different people, I was able to use those relationships to say, hey, can you wear this? You know, this person wears it, take a picture, put it on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Um, Hey, link back to the website and they're buying it. And so was able to do that really quickly um, and grow up to a space, like I said, in, you know, within a couple of years, getting like 20,000 orders per month. But that also taught me that like, it's cool, but that's not the business that I wanted. Right. I, I didn't I didn't do it because I really wanted to do it. I did it because it was just like the next step for me. I wanted to own my own business. I wanted to learn how to manage and maintain things. And because I'd spent so much time in the music industry, all of the jobs that I was like trying to apply to was more were more marketing centric, technology centric. And no one would hire me because I didn't really have the resume. So I hired myself and like (laughs) that clothing line was my proof of concept. That clothing line was like, hey, you won't hire me, but I know these skills. I was able to do this. And then that kind of opened the door to a lot of the other things that um, I eventually ended up doing. Hmm. So, so yeah, talk a little bit more about you hiring yourself, you know, so at what point were you able to enable that? And at what point did it start to feel like, okay, this this is what I want to be doing. You know, everything that I've been doing till now has been building up to this. Yeah, I think, you know, I I am going to date myself now. So I moved (laughs) back to Tampa um, in 2011. um, And I moved back with two suitcases and a laptop. And my parents were like, hey, get it together. Figure out what you want to do next. I'd taken some time off and to pursue my, my music career. And my thing with, with my parents was like, if you if you let me do this, like, and it doesn't work out, I'll come back to Tampa and I'll try it your way. Mm. Um, and so come went back to Tampa and uh, you know re-enrolled in school before and you know before it was the cool thing to do was doing online schooling, and was really thinking about well if the, if if my work is going to be something that I dedicate a significant amount of time to. Um, it, it needs to be something that I love as much as music or that I could grow to love as much as music. And mm-hmm. so what are those things? And for me, it was like, well, I always had an interest in technology. I always had an interest in marketing. Um, I don't really know how these two come together, but I want to commit to like figuring it out. And so one of the first things that I did like for the clothing line, this was around the time that Wix was just starting out 
reached out to Wix and was like, hey, I see you have this program. I'd like to be, you know, a beta user to see if I can, you know, build content and stuff on your platform and started building, um, taught myself how to code, uh, no code, how to do no code websites. And then just gradually kind of continued to build up from there and started to put together the framework. Really, the ne- launching a, t- a clothing line was because I didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was like, if you're going to launch a product, what is the easiest thing that you can do? You can create the the designs. You can create a no-code website for $20 with the domain. And you can upload these designs into this website that allows people to purchase before you even have to buy the inventory. And so it was just kind of like... It was first out of necessity because it's like, how can I make money and do things that I love? But then also, how can I utilize the skills that I'm learning to transfer those into the jobs that I actually eventually want? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of how it started for me. Cool. Makes sense. So, I mean, once you dived into it and you figured out a bit how you could could integrate, you know, your passions for technology and marketing, and once you started to glean more insights into you know into these worlds, what you know what emerged as something potentially that you could love you know like like as much as you love music. I think for me, it's always been strategy. Um, I I see things differently than everyone else, and that was something that I kind of really learned early. And when I did start to transition, and one of my first jobs was working as a consultant at Microsoft. Um, and on their ad stuff. And most of the people at that time were like, they were, they had, they had interned, they were on that track, they were engineering, they thought a certain way, but because I had a different experience because I was a creator first, because I was a music person first. And I'd spent a lot of time around a lot of creatives, the way that I approached things was from, was with that view in mind. Um, and kind of always with the creative in mind. And so I just ended up having like a really good knack for strategy and strategic vision. I didn't know that's what it was called at the time. It was just something that I'd always kind of innately done. If someone tells me something that that they want to do, I just see it. I see how the pieces can come together. I go and I do the research and it's like, oh yeah, okay, this is exactly what you need to do next. And it was something that I'd always done. And didn't know what to call it until I started working in that role as a consultant at Microsoft. And the person that was like my manager was like, hey, you're working right now as a consultant for being ads and talking, you know, small businesses through what their strategy should be to grow their revenue. You should really look at this. And it kind of put me on the path of that of brand strategy in, um, in growth, in revenue growth based on things that I was just doing naturally. Hmm, cool. So was that around the time that that you had, you know, the idea to start your own agency? No, that didn't come until a couple years later. Okay. Um after Microsoft, I went and worked at Nielsen for a couple of years. Right. Um on their mobile measurement um platform and I got to work with a lot of really cool brands, uh CW, Bacardi, um Freeform before they were Freeform when they were still ABC family, um, <laughs> worked through the whole transition of that, worked with ABC, Viacom. So really got the experience of like working with global brands and mm. their teams on 
building out kind of their digital approach. And one of the things that I realized in, in those conversations is that, you know, people were always talking about a certain demographic, right? They were always talking about um, either Black creators or, um, you know, Black people. And yet I was like one of the few people in the room who actually met that demographic and actually could speak to um, a lot of the things that they were trying to do. And so after kind of talking to one of my mentors, right, like at that time, and it's still kind of a factor today, but like less than 3% of decision makers in the agency world, in the advertising world are Black. Hmm. Um, it's increased over the last couple of years, but back in 2014, 2015, um, that was the reality. And so one of my mentors kind of said to me, like, you could either <laughs> stay here and continue to complain about the injustices, or you could become a part of the solution. Hmm. Um, and that kind of planted the seed for me. But I didn't really know how to run an agency. Um, I'd been freelancing for a bit uh, as a side hustle. And I'd worked at, you know, Nielsen, which is a large company and had that support. And I was kind of missing the agency support. So one of the next things that I did was go and work at um, an agency as a strategist for a year and a half to really learn, you know, how do you run an agency? How do you go out and approach and pitch business and all those pieces that I was missing. And then after about a year of doing that, in 2016, I was like, you know what, now it's time. I have this, I have the brand strategy, I have the the format, I have the agency. Now it's time to kind of transition into trying to do it on my own and working with, you know, creators to help them build out their strategies. Cool. That's amazing. So once you did take, you know, that step and start your own agency, I mean, how did that feel? It felt great and scary. Um, great because I was I was my own person. Um, scary because even though I had a holistic view of things, I thought probably, and, and I know now like this was the wrong approach, but I thought that in order to do it, I had to go all in, which meant like, you know, because that's, that's what everyone was saying, right? Like save right. your money. And if you're going to commit, commit mm -hmm. and go all in. And I really regret that I did that in the way that I did it because I wish that like looking back, I would have probably done it as a side hustle a little bit longer before taking that one year to kind of dive all in. Mm -hmm. Because even though like I loved it, that first year in business was a lot mm -hmm. um, and, you know, <laughs> It was a lot. And so I wish that I kind of did have that safety net mm -hmm. of having the full-time role and having that consistency as I'm building up to then kind of transition into um, into something full-time. Because one of the things that I learned then is like working with creators and the way that our my business was positioned back then is that working with creators is amazing, but it's going to be a little bit inconsistent at first unless you can work with them at scale. Right. You know, one of the stories that I tell all the time is like when I launched the, the agency in 2016, our our service offering was like a $1,500 package, right? And it was primarily focused on creators. I mean, the year since, right, we now work with brands and startups and all those things. And so launching with a $1,500 package for creators and then building up 
the agency to the point that like our brand and our startup engagements at minimum start at a hundred thousand per year. Mm. Um, it's like, that was the, that was the missing piece. But in that first year, I thought like, I want to, I want to make sure that it's accessible to creators, um, and that they get the information that they need. But at the same time, in order to make $1,500 work with your living expenses and managing a team and other freelancers, you have to do it at scale. And the market that I was in just didn't have, it just wasn't scalable, right? It wasn't scalable in the marketplace in the way that I was doing it. Mm -hmm. Who were some of the first creators that you started working with? And like, you know, at the time, what were some of the pain points that we, you know, they were working through? What were some of the strategies that you're applying? You know, what came as part of this package? Yeah, I think it's it was always in in not much has changed, but it's been like it's brand positioning. Mm-hmm. It's positioning as an artist. Um, regardless of what what artists say, when they come to me, it's all it always comes back down to positioning is how do you position yourself in the marketplace? Um, it's not necessarily about being competing with the larger artists, right? If you are an usher, you don't need to you don't need to be like Usher, right? Like if you if you want to be the usher in your space, you don't need to be like Usher. But a lot of artists, what I found then and is applicable now, is they struggle with defining their own voice, defining their own sound, defining defining their approach because they get kind of trapped into, this is what the industry is doing, so this is what I have to do. The industry releases on Friday, so I release my music on Friday. Why would you ever compete with Drake on a Friday? (laughs) (laughs) Ever, as an independent artist. Like Drake and the label have an unlimited budget. Mm -hmm. Why would you ever do that? And so Mm -hmm. that's a lot of the things that we work with them through, that I worked with them through then and work with them through now is making sure that your website is where it needs to be, mm-hmm. making sure that all of your links link back to where you are so people can find you, setting up your newsletter, um, making sure that if someone is looking for you and someone finds a song on Spotify um, or Apple Music, that they have a clear path back to a channel that you own so mm-hmm. that you can then nurture that relationship mm-hmm. and take it to the next level. Totally. That seems like a good segue to start talking about Web3. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so kind of in between, you know, your stints with your own agency, um, you, uh, you um, had like a year or so where you went to Royal. And, and we'd love to hear, you know, at first, if you could just, you know, give a brief you know, kind of description of what Royal is for the people listening who might not know. And then talk a little bit about, you know, like how you became involved, what was happening with Royal when you did become involved and what the process was like of, you know, carrying it through to market. Yeah, I'll definitely t- uh, chat about Royal. I think, you know, part of like me launching in year one for the agency, I did also have a sprint, a, a stint where I worked for Apple for a number of years. Um, mm-hmm. They saw the work that I was doing through the agency and recruited me to lead a lot of their artists and in, in global initiatives mm. within Apple itself. And so from 2017 through about 2020, I spent um, within the Apple ecosystem. Um, and then, you know, pandemic comes, things shift and they change. And I think I started to kind of look around and question for myself, well, what's next, right? Like, what do I want to do? I've done all of these things. What do I want to do next? Where's the, the world going? 
And I've spent a lot of time in larger companies running my my agency on the side and thinking through like, how do I how do I bring these worlds together? On the one side, my career has taken this like really operational rigor, effectiveness, strategic vision. I see the future. And then on the other side, I'm still deeply involved in the creator ecosystem and working with brands and creators to build their strategies. So how do I bring all of those together? Um, and so Royal is a mar- is a marketplace that allows artists to sell portions of their royalties through um, digital assets, also known as NFTs. I know that's not a that's a dirty word right now, <laughs> but that's essentially what it is, right? And um, I was approached by um, the by Royal to come in and kind of lead their go to market strategy. Um, and really, in the beginning, it was like it was just an idea. Right. It was just an idea of like, hey, we are about to build this technology that allows artists to sell a portion of their masters directly to fans. And it allows them to kind of capitalize on the monetization that they're creating, which is really the ethos that I've kind of built my career around because of my experience of being an artist, being a songwriter to a label. They own the master. They get to exploit the master none of that money really comes back to me because I took an advance. Mm-hmm. And so without understanding that structure, I kind of completely shifted my thought and a process throughout my, and approach throughout my career and working with smaller artists, it was always own your shit, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. excuse my language, but no, no, it's, it's about, you know, <laughs> own your shit, own it, make sure that it's yours. And then if you decide to sell it, you sell it, but at least you are, leveraging your your IP as you're building, as you're growing, without turning it over, being informed. And Royal, I think, was really, really great. And what I, why I was attracted to the project is because it did give artists the opportunities to really take ownership of their career and ownership, essentially, of the relationship with their fans in the sense that, you know, now we can be partners in this journey and if I don't, if I don't want to sign to a label, I don't have to. But if I do, then I've only kind of given up one song as opposed to my entire catalog, and the options are a little different. Mm-hmm. So, so at that time when you know you were when you were contacted by Royal, uh, did you already know? Like, like had had you already dipped your toes into Web three at all? Like, were you aware of the ecosystem? You know what? You know what was your education level at that point, or like how much? You know, like how much of the on ramp? You know, was still ahead of you? Yeah. So, um, I spent about six six months prior to being contacted by Royal. I spent some time as um, an entrepreneur in residence at Decent Labs, which is a Web3 Accelerator, I think one of the leading ones in the space. And I was advising um, a part, uh, advising people who were building, founders who were building in Web3, how to build their companies um, with, the, with the information that I had just from you know, my, my experience in my career, and then taking their idea and hearing out their idea and then giving them like, this is what you need to do as a founder. And so I had, I got experience and exposure to a wide array of Web3 projects within that space. Um, 
I think I can say it like a couple like art world, decent, um, decent music, a, a lot of really great platforms that I was able to advise through their process. And so with that, I started to get like a true on ramp into not only like Web3, but Web3 as a tool for creators and how that's, that plays into it. And I think that is my my profile is what attracted Royal to me. The fact that I had the music background, the fact that I had the deeply technical background, having worked with Apple and Microsoft and Nielsen. And then also, you know, I, I'd spent six months really advising founders of these great projects, how to build their projects and understand the, the space and grow it to the next level. And I think the profile that I had is exactly what they were looking for in mm-hmm. terms of someone who would be able to like understand the landscape of where we're at, but also be a part of setting that vision for what we could become. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So once you were bought in to, you know, to the Royal Vision and you came on board and started, you know, to leverage your experience cross tech, you know, and, you know, cross building strategy, uh, you know, how did that process come together? How did it evolve, you know, from there? I think everything kind of starts, and this is really with any, anything that I approach, I think everything kind of starts with an idea in, a, in a, a framework of like, hey, we want to be able to pay royalties on chain, <laughs> mm-hmm. something that prior to, you know, royal doing had never been done. Mm-hmm. And so then it's working backwards. We want to pay out royalties on chain. What are the things that we need to do, right? Who are the pieces of the puzzle that need to be bought into this process? It's mm-hmm. not just the artists and their team. It's also the publisher, right? It's also the the label or the distributor who's issuing the royalties. It's also, you know, in, in some ways the PROs, right? It's kind of like all of these things that need to happen in order for us to accomplish something as seemingly simple as paying out collectors on chain. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the fact that the royalty space is one of the more antiquated parts of the music industry. Mm-hmm. And I know some producers who still haven't been paid out their points on records. And yet, you know, uh, Royal has done multiple payouts um, to their collectors in the years since we've done it. And so when I got there, right, none of that, none of those things had been done. None of those things have been done yet. Um, and so it was kind of setting that operational rigor setting up the processes and the systems that are going to get us from, hey, someone is interested all the way through to now we're able to pay pay out this royalty. Um, and so I really um, took an end-to-end approach to how do we do something as complicated as this, but make it as seamless as possible. And of course, you haven't, they, Royal has an amazing engineering team as well, great product team. Um, and so we kind of all came together uh, to think through how do we do this and how we do it in a way that makes it easy for everyone. Totally. When you first uh, were beginning to actually have conversations with artists and people, you know, to bring them on board once you had kind of the rails in place, uh, you know, it's really difficult to communicate this. To, I mean, even even today, like you know, this is a couple years in, uh, and it's still really difficult to communicate what 
what's happening and what this is and what this means to people who you know haven't interacted with you know with this before there's plenty of stigma uh you know in the web3 space i think oftentimes for good reason <laughs> um there there are a lot of scams uh and and various other things as you said earlier nft has kind of become a dirty word so you know how difficult was it when you started having you know you know conversations with artists as as kind of the first use cases for what you're trying to prove I don't think it was really that difficult because one of the things that I focus on and I think you know Royal took this approach very early on is to like not necessarily focus on web3 or mm -hmm. blockchain or mm -hmm. um, NFT or kind of all of those things what I really focus on in my conversations that I have now as well um and even how we build out how I'm building out visionary um it is with this understanding of like the technology doesn't necessarily like you don't need to know how the car works right when you think mm -hmm. about the right an air condition right the invention of the air conditioner you don't think about that a compressor has to kick on to pump the air all that you know is like i'm hot and i turn on the ac and i'm and cold I feel better <laughs> you know and i feel better right yeah. or i'm i'm cold and i turn on the heater and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm heated. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think about blockchain in that same way for, for artists, it's not necessarily what is happening behind the scenes. It's like, we're solving, uh, Royal is solving a problem. Platforms like Royal are solving the problem of, you know, maybe monetization. Um, and so we focus on the problem that it's trying to solve and not necessarily how it gets solved. And that was really the the overall strategy is like, let's focus on what we're solving and who we're solving it for. And so in those conversations with the artists that we were having, that we ended up, you know, eventually closing and doing really great work with, it's like, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? All right, is it uh, communication with your audience? Is it having a deeper connection? Okay, great, let's build out something around that, All right? Whatever it is that you're trying to solve, Let's focus on solving that, and then everything else becomes secondary. Yeah, I think that's certainly the way to go about it, and I think it's sort of been the pitfall of a lot of, you know, a lot of organizations leading with the technology first. And it still feels like, you know, Web three does that in general is still kind of leading mm -hmm. with, you know, with the technology first, you know, rather than the benefits of the technology. As you said, you don't have to, you don't have to know, you know, how a car works in order to drive one. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it's very intuitive to understand you know, all the benefits you're getting from, from having a vehicle. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, I'm curious, you know, talking about something that's happened a little more recently to get your thoughts on the, you know, Rihanna drop, you know, I'm putting that in quotes because, um, it wasn't really a Rihanna drop, even though it was kind of connected to her music, but the one that happened on, you know, on another block, which is also oriented around royalties and, uh, I'm just curious to get, you know, your high level thoughts on, on that. Yeah, I think high level, right. I love what another block is doing in terms of opening up opportunities to all of the rights holders on a song. Um, when you think about the music industry as a whole, right. Um, songwriters are locked in a battle right now to get more, um, to get more distribution and, in and more notice on what their share of publishing is and what their share of songs are producers historically 
especially within, you know, not necessarily on that song that you're talking about, but historically within the context of the music industry, producers are paid last. Uh, Songwriters are paid less. And the primary kind of share of a song's rights and things goes to the rights holders, the primary rights holders, um, artists and labels. And so I think a platform that allows all rights holders, regardless of how many points you have on a song, participate or potentially participate in it, I think it's a good thing for the industry as a whole. Um, because it a lot of times you're not going to push things forward by going the safe route. Right. So I think it's a really great test. It's a testament to that question of like, would, would this sell? without the artist necessarily being involved. Mm -hmm. And I think what that type of play does and approach does is like it answers that question. If you're kind of truly, if the song is good and the product that's being issued is good, should it matter that it came from the producer who rightfully was able to sell a portion Mm -hmm. of the proceeds that he got from his IP, because it's still his IP. He was a part of the the creation of the song. He was a part of the creation of that song. And so if he wants to cash in on that, why shouldn't he be able to? Totally. Um, Yeah, and just to contextualize this whole thing. So um, a couple weeks ago, there was a Rihanna song, Bitch Better Have My Money, which which most people probably have, have heard. And there was a lot of talk going around the ecosystem about the Rihanna drop, um, but but Rihanna herself didn't really have anything to do with this particular NFT drop. It was one of the one of the song's four credited producers um, who actually sold a percentage of his future streaming royalties on his percentage of the master rights to the song. Um, so yeah, you know, as you were saying, Letitia, it's uh, I feel like it's a good experiment in the space that. That is enabling other people, especially now. I mean, there can, you know, there's like a Beyonce song that has like, in, you know, like 24 people, you know, who are credited. people on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like those people should also be able to use their IP, uh, you know, to their advantage when they need to. Um, I agree. And I think that that's the reason that the larger artists give that to, that give that share to the mm-hmm. artists is for them to participate in the future revenue of the song. Um, Because every artist, especially a major artist, understands that the music that they're creating, they may not capture the full revenue potential for that song within the first year, within the first two years, because a longer term play is on the exploitation of the master over the long haul. And so by including the, the rights holders on it, by including the producers and the songwriters, and on the points and, you know, to even break it down even further, what are points on a record, right? Um, to contextualize it, points on a record are percentages that are um, given or given to creators on the song. And so, for example, you'll have 100%, I'm sorry, 100 points that are available to be distributed on the master side of the record. And so as a creator, you'll get a point of that. You'll get five points, maybe 10 points, however it's divided up. And then of those 10 points, when revenue is generated, you receive your percentage based on the points that you have. And so I do think that as we're moving into the future, 
opportunities where all rights holders, not just the label, not just the primary person, mm -hmm. um, not just the performing artist, can continue to benefit from the opportunities that are present. Um, I think it's just a good thing for, for the space and for music as a whole. Absolutely, I agree. I mean, it's you know putting a lot more agency back into more people's hands, and mm -hmm. you know, as you as you said earlier, own your shit. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and that's that's the advantage. Um, and you know, hopefully, with this technology, that that you know is further you know is further empowering you know that agency for more people. Um, and uh, speaking of agency, uh, to go back to your agency, we'd love to talk about. The transition back, you know, and away from Royal and why you made that decision to, at this point, you know, go all in on your agency. Yeah, I think, you know, I was I was hired at Royal when it was at zero, right? It was like, and the idea was like zero to one, two to five. Um, and the one being market launch of the marketplace and the realization of that. Um, and that happened in November of last year. And I think for me, it was kind of one of those thoughts of, you know, this is something that I've created and it's amazing and it's good. And I've been a part of creating this that's going to advance the space. But going back to kind of the reason that I started down this path in the first place was the expansion of the creator ecosystem and to truly ensure that creators are empowered to make informed decisions with what's developing. And I think when we think about Web 2 and Web 3 and the promise of Web 3, for me, what's wrong with the music industry or what needs to be fixed is like there currently are four major are uh, major labels within the music industry that really set the tone for what happens um how legislator gets granted what are the percentage of the artists everyone has a problem with spotify i don't believe that it's truly a spotify issue i think it's the the the, the major players and i think that with web3 if we are to truly change and to challenge, we can't have that same um, ecosystem. It can't just be one primary player that is way more you know, successful than all of the other players. And because mm -hmm. of that success and because of the amount of money that was raised and because of all of these other factors, um, they're able to set the, they and they alone are able to set the trajectory for the space. And so, I was at the point where I felt like, you know, the work there has been good, but if I am to do my greatest work, what does my greatest work look like? And I think the more that I uh, kept asking myself that question, the more that I came back to the space of like, you already have that framework there. You started it in 2016. You've, you know, been a part of it for a couple of years. You've done it in the side. If not now, when? Hmm. And... What does that vision look like? All of these things that I've done in my career, all of now these connections that I've made, um, the career that I've built, this is an opportunity to really go in on that model. It doesn't mean that I may not take another opportunity if it comes along, but it's kind of giving yourself that freedom and that flexibility to lean back into the thing that it has been there all along for a reason. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, how has that felt, uh, you know, compared to the first time? It feels like, you know, there was hesitation initially, but it feels like, you know, given all that you've done, it's like a more mature moment to, to you know, hire yourself again. And I'm curious, like, you know, how that's feeling and kind of what, you know, how things are going, like, 
you know, who are you working with? You know, what, you know, what is most exciting to you right now about, you know, about this new journey? Yeah, I think, you know, it's been definitely, um, it's been really good. It feels really good. You know, I've, I've built a team along the, along the years, um, over the years who have been like fully committed to the vision of visionary rising and they've worked as I've kind of, I, and I was still working in the, in the agency, just not, you know, in a full-time capacity, I was working kind of nine to five in, in my tech career and then five to nine and uh, on the studio and the agency. And I think stepping back into it, um, having the understanding of all of the things that I have seen over the last six, seven years, stepping back into it and getting with the team and saying like, hey, this is the the vision that I have for the future. And it's like to build a studio that's a protocol. Um, and yeah, that definitely comes from Web3. But <laughs> with the idea that, you know, we don't have to be a traditional agency. Um, I don't have to you know, only serve this thing or only do this thing. We can be a growth partner and, you know, I can build a team of, of freelancers and people who are completely committed to this version, but also work in a way that is the most effective for them and feels good to them. And also their growth is unlimited and they have a clear pathway to being able to launch their own hub if they want to. Um, learn what learn learn under me for a year, get all of the details and the things that they need, but then go off and launch their own agency, launch their own studio where they can become a partner. Um, and that has been kind of the most exciting thing is thinking through. There aren't a lot of studios right now who are, I think, serving the needs of as a growth partner. That means that I'm solely committed to helping you to grow. Um, that may mean looking at your creative and getting you like the dopest creative in the world. We have someone on our team who was the former head create, head of creative for Netflix Global. Um, and so if you want a dope brand, I can get that for you. But if you want to just focus on your revenue growth and your trajectory and your strategy, I can also do that for you. Um, and just kind of looking at that as a whole. And so I'm most excited about the brands who and in startups who've approached us and are like hey we believe in what you're you're doing and this is also kind of an ecosystem that we want to build and we want to partner in figuring out how this takes shape and then also i don't know when this is going to come out so this may be a little bit early but um we're in the part process of partnering with a global creator community who has about nine thousand music artists globally and will be providing services for these artists um, and creating a streamlined way for them to get the media kits that they need to get strategy that they need streaming strategy we have a lot of kind of technology partners that will be um, diving into partnering with to ensure that as as creators come in that they're able to build their the tech stack that they need to be successful and also get the support that they need to understand how to approach their growth in mm -hmm. Web 2 and then build their community in Web 3. Cool. That's really exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to, to hear more about that and, and to, to watch that evolve. Um, and I just have one more question for you, and it's something I, I ask everybody. Um, you're you're going to a desert island. 
you get to bring three albums with you, what are they? <laughs> oh man, damn, this is good. Um, three albums, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Nice. Um, Songs About Jane, Maroon 5's mm. first album. Cool. Um, and 444. Nice. Good selection. Those are my three. That was quick. <laughs> <laughs> Those are my three. Those are my three. Because each of them speak to a different phase and stage in my life. Um, and those, I would say, are my top three albums. Cool. Man, that, that was really quick. You, it was like you knew I was going to ask you that. <laughs> I, did, I had no idea. <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. Okay. I believe you. Um, Cool. Well, Letitia, it's been really great to chat. Um, you know, last thing, you know, what's the best place for people listening, you know, to follow you, you know, to get involved and to keep track of, of all the things you're doing? Sure thing. The best place to visit me is going to be on either Instagram or Twitter. Um, Leticia Rising, L-A-T-E-C-I-A Rising across everything. Um, and then also if you want to catch up on what the um on what the studio is doing follow us at visionary rising uh, across everything cool cool awesome Leticia. it's been great to have you here thank you again so much for your time no problem thanks for having me absolutely take care wishing you the best all right that's it for this episode of big brother and the hodling company I'm your host McKeegan voice and you can keep up with me and all the latest web3 music trends on Twitter at McKeegan that's M-A-C-E-A-G-O-N. This show is a production of Decentral Media. And you can visit us at Decentral.io. And remember, only you can prevent and fend off Big Brother. <laughs> <laughs>